And I spent some time on the phone today with a, with a couple of different people just dealing with some stress and some doubts and worries and struggles, uh, bordering on depression. And I was thinking that in light of Matthew 27, if, if there's any stress in your life, if there are any worries, if there are any doubts, if anyone is struggling with hardship or persecution or depression, all of these things, all of our worries, all of our concerns should be silenced tonight. When we come to the foot of the cross, it's at that place that nothing else matters. Nothing that we worry about or stress over or strive to accomplish, none of it matters. When we stand at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, we are all on even ground. There's no one better than anybody else. No one more successful or less successful. We're all exactly the same before Christ Jesus. Dead in our transgressions, but saved and made alive by His grace. We come to the foot of the cross tonight to a sacrifice so great that regardless of what's going on in our lives, nothing compares. And if we could stay in this place recognizing what He accomplished on that day 2,000 years ago, I think for the most part our worries would just fade away. Matthew 27, verse 1. You know, let, let, me, let me pray before we start. Father, I recognize tonight that we are approaching You on holy ground. Ground that uh, is blood-stained, Lord, by the sacrifice of Jesus. By the most important event in the entire existence of the world and the universe. And tonight, Lord, I don't pray for insight and understanding. I pray that You will evoke within us an emotional response to what You accomplished at Calvary. I pray that You will lift up our eyes to look at Jesus, the only One who was truly lifted up so that He might draw all men, all women to Himself. And we approach You tonight wanting to draw as close to You as we can. Wanting to be made fully aware of of Your love and of the meaning behind the sacrifice. And I pray, Father, that what we see and what we understand tonight will deal with us at the deepest level of our spirits. Will deal with our nagging false guilt. We'll deal with sin that we're having trouble conquering ourselves. We'll deal with bitterness at the deepest levels. We'll deal with fear, Father. I pray that the message of the cross will get in where where no other message can. And that Your blood, Lord Jesus, would truly heal us. For me, I'm asking a lot, Lord. For You, it's, it's very little. For the price has been paid. And as John wrote, the Spirit and the blood and the water, these three testify. 
And so tonight, deal with us, Father, as we look to You, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed Him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now before we quite get to the crucifixion of Jesus, there are a few things we need to deal with along the way here. Three things actually, Judas, Jeremiah, and a judge. We're going to look at Judas, Jeremiah, and a judge. We looked at Judas last week. In fact, we kind of ended up with his story. But I got home after talking about the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter, whose, whose sorrow was a godly sorrow unto salvation, and Judas, whose sorrow was a worldly sorrow unto death. And when I walked in to the door, my son Hayden was standing there in the, in the hallway, in the entryway, waiting for me. And he said, Dad, I have a question about tonight's teaching. And I love when he has a question about tonight's teaching, other than why did you wear that sweater with that shirt? <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, Dad, where do you think Judas is now? Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3 in the King James Version is translated this way, Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Boy, if you read it in the King James, you wonder, well, wait a minute. Did he? Did he repent? You read it in the New American Standard, it says he felt remorse. And so my inkling, my my first reaction to that is to feel sorry for him. To think, okay, so there was a shift, there was something going on in his heart. This is where there is such value in looking at the words in their original meaning. The Greek word that normally is translated repent is metanoia. Metanoia, which literally means a change of heart. It's a turning around. It's changing from one place completely to another. That's not the word that's being used here. That The NASB translates remorse, and the King James translated repented himself. The word there is metamelomai. It's not easy to say some of these words. Metamelomai. And it means a shift of concern. It doesn't mean a change of heart. It doesn't mean turning around and, and, and going back on what you did. It's, it's a change of focus. It's a turn of concern. Judas was first concerned about getting whatever he could out of Jesus and the movement. He followed Jesus around. He thought he was on to something. And then when it started to be clear to him that he wasn't on to something, that this was more of a spiritual thing, he began pilfering the money bag. 
stealing from Jesus throughout the ministry. John tells us that. Unbelievable that you would have the audacity in the face of Jesus himself to be ripping money off out of the ministry bag. I actually have been aware in previous churches I've known of deacons who sat in the back and they counted the money that was given and they stole from the church. And I can't even imagine. Has it ever happened to the bridge? I don't know. If it has, God will deal with it. I don't think so. But I just, I mean, of, of all the places you could lift money, a few bucks here, a few dollars there, to steal from Jesus. And this is what Judas was doing. Getting what he could out of the ministry while he could. And when it looked as though things were winding down and it was heating up and it was not a good place to be anymore, then Judas decides, I'm getting out with whatever I can. What will you give me to betray him? What will you pay me? And they give him 30 pieces of silver. Not much, but... For Judas, it was something, and he took it and he betrayed Jesus. After that, Metamelomai, he had a shift of concern. His first concern was getting what he could out of Jesus. Now that he's gotten all he can, his second concern is not repentance, it's getting rid of guilt. He feels guilty. He recognizes, for all his wickedness, he recognizes Jesus was innocent. And he feels guilty and he's got to get this guilt off of his back. So many people in the world do that. We feel guilt and remorse, but it's not repentance. And there's a big difference. There's a huge difference between guilt and remorse over that and and repentance. Our jails and our prison houses are full of remorseful people. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that, that someone in jail can't truly repent and know the Lord. I know people do. But there are many who feel bad because they were caught. They're remorseful because now they're in a worse place than they were before. That's Judas. Metamelomai, he shifted his concern. But both of Judas' concerns, before and after his betrayal, both concerns were self-concerns. It was all about him. He did not turn to the Lord after betraying Jesus. He turned further into himself. He was remorseful to his own person. He was sorry that things turned out that way. That's not repentance. I read to you again the verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10. The sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret. Once you've repented and given your life to God, guess what? The false guilt isn't there anymore. You don't continue to bear that. You don't have the regret because you've given your life to the Lord. That's repentance. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Where did Judas end up? He killed himself. That's the sorrow of the world. Repentance isn't feeling sorry for yourself. Repentance is feeling sorrow to the Lord. David understood this. When David, after getting caught in his mess with Bathsheba, First committing adultery with her. Second lying about it. Third murdering her husband so that they wouldn't get caught. When all that came down, Psalm 51 is the psalm where, where David repented to the Lord. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's repentance. It's not feeling bad because your actions may have hurt someone else and therefore hurts you too, it's realizing your sin is against God and God alone. That He is the recipient of our sin. That's godly sorrow. It's true repentance. It's because of that repentance David was able to get up out of his bed and go on to serve the Lord in his life. So repentance is not about 
putting salve on the conscience, it's about putting salvation in the heart. It's not about trying to wipe away guilt. So that's what psychologists will do. I'm not completely anti-psychology or anti-counseling, but so many people will go to a counselor to try and get rid of guilt. There's only one way to get truly get rid of guilt, and that's to repent before the Lord. Let Him take it away. What did Jesus or what did Judas do? He fell headlong, suicide by hanging. Judas' death is the ultimate act of self-destructive victimization. Oh woe is me! Jesus died to take our sins on him on himself. Judas died taking his sins with him. Where is Judas? Hayden asked me. I cannot believe we'll be seeing him in heaven. Oh, there are theologians and scholars smarter than me who try to make a case that we will. But Jesus, in John 17, verse 12, Jesus said of the apostles, I guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of perdition. Judas. The rest were saved. Judas perished and not just died. He was the one apostle lost. You know what's amazing is even at this point when he threw the money into the temple and he turned away, even at that point I believe Judas could have been saved had he not given up and played the victim role and taken his life. Now I'm not making a statement about suicide. That's another conversation for another time. If you want my opinion on suicide and how the Lord deals with that, we'll talk about that. You can ask me about it afterward. So that's Judas. But moving on, we have a little issue with Jeremiah. Look at verse 9. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, there's a little problem here. And I point these two verses out to show you something. Matthew says this is fulfilled, a prophecy fulfilled from Jeremiah. Problem is, Jeremiah didn't write this quote, Zechariah did. And we know this for a fact, and you can look it up. Zechariah 11, verse 12 says, They weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Zechariah wrote that. Zechariah the prophet, not Jeremiah the prophet. Oops. (laughs) Now some would say, well, you know, Matthew just made a mistake. Problem is, Matthew wasn't the author. He was the the scribe. The Holy Spirit was the author. So did the Holy Spirit make a mistake? Why is it that Matthew writes it was Jeremiah when we know that it was not Jeremiah? And there's not a verse in Jeremiah that... Well, there's there's a parallel passage I'll show you in a moment. But there's not a verse quotable like this in the way Matthew quotes it. But there is a simple explanation. You Bible students may recall, we've talked about how the Hebrew, Hebrew Scriptures today are called the Tanakh. And that's an acronym for the three subject or the three sections, three groupings, if you will, of the Hebrew Scriptures: the Torah, first five books, which is the Law, the Nevi'im, which are the books of the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which are the writings—Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and so forth. The Tanakh is laid out differently than the way we have the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures laid out in our Bibles. We have a different order. We've, you know, the Christian Bible takes it and kind of reorders it uh, more chronologically mostly, uh, than the Hebrew Bible does. The Hebrew Bible is just a very interesting approach to it. So they have Torah first, Nevi'im second, 
Ketubim third, Torah, Nebim, Ketubim, Tanakh. That's where the Tanakh comes from. But I tell you that because in the Nebaim, that, that second section, that second grouping of the prophets, Jeremiah is the book that comes first. In our Christian Bibles, Isaiah comes first. Well, that's because Isaiah is so huge, filled with prophecy of, of Messiah, and, and there's a reason that it was placed ahead of Jeremiah. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's Jeremiah at the lead of the book of the Nebaim, the prophets. That's significant. Because to a Jewish person in the first century, you would have referred to the entire book of the prophets, Nebaim, as Jeremiah. It was an easy way just to say, you know, from Jeremiah. And people would know, okay, it's from the second section. In the same way, people call the Torah the law. Well, the Torah is not the law. Genesis is not the law. All the way up until you get to Exodus, about 12 or so, you don't have the law at all. It's It's history. And furthermore, in, in the Torah, there's a lot of history in there that's, that's not law. It's not just the law, but people refer to it as the law. Oh, okay, that's the first five books, the law. The second five books, or, or the second set of books, people would have called Jeremiah. And so for Matthew to write that this was found in Jeremiah the prophet would be accurate based on the Hebrew Scriptures, because in that section that leads off with Jeremiah, that's where you will find this. And it makes sense when you look at it from a Hebrew Perspective. Now, there is an interesting prophecy in Jeremiah that parallels this. If you'll flip back, keep your finger there in Matthew 27, and go to Jeremiah chapter 19. The prophets are found about midway into the Bible, so if you kind of go there and look around. Jeremiah precedes Lamentations, comes after Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter 19 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar, and take some of the elders of the people and some of the senior priests. Then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, the Hinnom Valley, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place, at which the ears of everyone that hears it will tingle, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. And because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, a thing which I never commanded or spoke of, nor did it ever enter my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Tophet, or the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the Valley of Slaughter. I will make void the counsel of Judah and Jerusalem in this place, and I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies by the hand of those who seek their life. And I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will also make this city a desolation and an object of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress him. Now this is a prophecy of Babylon and their conquering of Jerusalem. But read on verse 10. 
God saying this to Jeremiah. Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, So I will break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired, and they will bury in Tophet, because there is no other place for burial. What's the significance of that? The potter's field. The potter's field was called that because that's where the potters threw out their broken potsherds, their broken pots. By the way, the only way that a broken pot can be made useful again is to be soaked in water and broken down and then heated back up until it's malleable like clay and can be, can be re- reworked. But in the potter's field... The pots and the broken shards would be all over the place. Where was that? According to Jeremiah, the Hinnom Valley. Valley of Tophet. I believe, and I cannot prove this, but I believe that that is where Judas hanged himself. I believe that is where the field was that was purchased that was called Hakel Dama, the field of blood. The field of blood. Acts chapter 1 verse 18 Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out and it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that their own language said this field was called Hakeldama that is field of blood and that's what happened with Judas and that's where the field what the field was referred to now you might notice one other thing that in Matthew it tells us that that Judas threw the silver into the temple and they took that money and bought the field. And Acta tells us that he bought the field himself. Is there a contradiction there? No, because it was blood money that bought the field. It was the blood money of Judas that bought the field. In essence, whether he threw it in or, and they bought the field or he bought the field, it's the same thing. Because the field was bought with the price of blood. And that's where Judas died. And that's where he hanged himself. Hayden, that's your answer. Where is Judas right now? Judas, Jeremiah, thirdly, the judge. Beginning in verse 11, a new player enters the drama on this early morning hour. In this early morning hour, a man by the name of Pompous Pilate, Pontius Pilate. (laughs) Matthew only mentions one civil trial under this judge, this procurator. We learn from Dr. Luke in Luke chapter 23 that there were actually three trials. Jesus begins early in the morning there before Pilate. And then Pilate, because he finds out Jesus is a Galilean, sends him over to Herod the Tetrarch. That is Herod Antipas, who is in charge of the region of the Galilee. Then Herod has his fun with Jesus and has him beaten and pokes fun at him and puts a purple robe on him and sends him back to Pilate. And it said historically that that day Pilate and Herod became very good friends and they were enemies prior to it. Because they ended up having a common enemy, a common man that they enjoyed making fun of together. So he started at Pilate, Jesus went to Herod, and then Jesus came back to Pilate. And you need to understand that because not only were there beatings and thrashings and unjust trials, but all night long leading up to the cross, Jesus was taken back and forth across Jerusalem six times in the midst of all that was going on. Now I've walked from the old city of Jerusalem to the new city of Jerusalem and needed to put my feet up for half an hour just to rest. It's quite a distance. Well, verse 11, back before Pilate. 
says, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say, and that is the question. Do not miss the significance of that. This is the most important question that can be asked and answered in the human condition. It's the one Matthew put pen to parchment to answer. Are you the king of Israel? Is Jesus the king? If you've been with us through our whole study of Matthew, all the way back at chapter 1, we have talked about how this is the gospel of the great king. And Matthew writes this to say to all Israel, Jesus is the king, the prophetic fulfillment of the promised king in the line of David. The one God said would come. And the one who is returning. He came as the very enfleshment of God's promise to David and to the people. If you want, you can follow me here or you can just listen. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 132. Psalm 132. A prophecy of this great king and the promise. Beginning in verse 10 of Psalm 132. For the sake of your servant David... Do not turn away the face of your anointed. What is the word anointed in Hebrew? Mashiach. Messiah. When you see the word anointed, it's Messiah. And so here, for the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your Messiah. Mashiach. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Verse 12 says, If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. Now hang on, quick side note on this. There are people who will take verse 12 and say, Well see, Israel didn't keep their promise, so God is relieved of His promise, therefore God's done with Israel. Because they blew it. No. All it says is, If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons will also stay on the throne. They didn't keep the covenant, and so their sons did not sit on the throne. But that doesn't mean God's son wouldn't. It doesn't mean His promise would not stand, the promise to send one of the line of David. Verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. He's speaking of Jerusalem. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. And her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. That is the authority of David. He's speaking again about Messiah. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But upon himself his crown shall shall shine. And that is one of many prophecies, many promises that a Messiah, an anointed one, would sit on the throne of the line of David. Because of that promise, Jesus responds to Pilate back in Matthew 27. Pilate says, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, Yeah. It is as you say. Literally there, you say. Or you said it. And it's the affirmative answer to the question. Are you the king of the Jews? You said it. Why why did Jesus sometimes answer and at other times in these trials remain silent? Have you wondered that? Because Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53 verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. So the indication is that he remained silent. Matthew points that out. When the chief priests are going after him, he answers not a word. But when asked specific questions, for example, if you look back in chapter 26, verse 63, it says Jesus kept silent. This is when the chief priests were baiting him and trying to get him to give them something that they could nail him with. Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, now he speaks, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, at the civil trial before Pilate, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And this silent one who was answering not a word suddenly says, it is as you say. What's going on here? Verse 12, read on. As, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Jesus did open his mouth when truth was on the table. We've got to recognize that subtle difference. He readily answered the true question of his nature. Are you the Christ? The chief priest asked in chapter 26, you've said it yourself. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked in 27, it is as you say. He readily answers when the questions are about the truth of his nature. Because that's the key. Who are you? I am Messiah. But Jesus refused to answer any false accusations. That's when his mouth was shut. Pilate's listening to these guys and they're going off, coming up with one trumped up charge after another and Jesus won't answer And Pilate is amazed because most people in that position were saying, no, that's not right, that's not true, don't listen to them. And Jesus won't say a word. And it's amazing to me. The false accusations deserve nothing but his silence. He only acknowledged what was spoken in truth. And it wasn't, listen to me, it was not because of silence in the face of false accusations that Jesus died. Jesus was crucified for the truth of who he was. And that's important to know. It wasn't that the chief priest got enough baloney out there to sway the people, to sway Pilate, to let him go, to get Jesus crucified. Yeah, we finally pulled it off. No. He was crucified for one reason and one reason alone, because he claimed to be Messiah. Because of the truth of who he was. Even his own enemies verify that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh. When people have trouble believing who Jesus was, one of the proofs is his enemies even said. His enemies even killed him because he claimed to be God. John 19.7, the Jews answered saying, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. And so Jesus died in truth because he was the Son of God. Not because of some trumped up accusations. By the way, when it comes to false things spoken against you, there's some wisdom here. Refuse to entertain false accusations. Someone at work says something about you and it's not true, don't say a word about it. Someone tries to bring up something against you and you know there is no truth to it, you don't even have to defend it. Keep your mouth shut. Speak not a word. Yeah, but what if my reputation is tarnished? Ultimately, it won't be. It may be for a while. You may have to go through a a period of time. 
But if you allow the Lord to be your shield, you've heard the phrase before, it's an old one, the truth will out. The proof is in the life. And the proof is in the truth that is seen. You don't have to fight false. We spend so much time and energy trying to protect ourselves against things spoken against us that are just not true. And Jesus shows us a beautiful example. I love this in the Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verse 2. Like a sparrow in its flitting, like a swallow in its flying, so a curse without cause does not alight. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. I love that. You've got a couple of idiots going at it because one says something false about the other and the other one now is trying to defend himself against something that's not even true in the first place and that's folly. Answer a fool as his folly deserves that he not be wise in his own eyes. And the best answer you give a fool who's trying to claim things against you that are untrue is no answer at all. Like Jesus, keep silent. Verse 15. Now back to Pilate. Consider this guy. At the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Pilate saw through what was going on. And he knew the chief priests had nothing on Jesus. That he was a harmless rabbi. That he had a following, but it was a peaceful following. Pilate knew that. He'd been around. He'd been on the seat there in Jerusalem and procurator over Judea for quite some time. In fact, Pilate was procurator over Judea for ten years. And in those ten years, he learned a few things. And one of the things he learned was how frustrating the Jewish people could be. And this is no exception. Can you imagine the frustration that he must have had as he's sitting there? He keeps offering up, through the Gospels, we see this picture of Pilate offering up ways out. Ways to let Jesus off the hook. Even to the point where he takes Jesus, this harmless rabbi, and Barabbas, a notorious prisoner, a murderous man, and says, I'll release one of the two. Assuming there's no way they're going to release Barabbas. He's too evil. He's too dangerous. You don't want him on the streets. They'll release Jesus, and they wouldn't do it. And it must have just frustrated him to no end. This was par for the course for Pilate and his governorship over Judea. He just didn't get along with the Jews. In fact, he made a number of fatal errors in ruling over Judea. Because if there's any single trait that seems to dominate the Jewish nature, and if you have a Jewish background, I mean no offense by this, but they are stubborn. There is a strong-willed attitude among the Jewish people, an indomitable spirit. I think that God put in there purposefully that is part of the nature and character of the Jewish people that they would stand through all that they have gone through. But they are a very stubborn people and very stubborn there for Pilate. They were one of the most difficult people to conquer in that region of the world. Assyria tried to do it. They took all of northern Israel into captivity. They dispersed them. And yet, we see throughout Scripture that people from northern Israel survived and continued to live in the land. Babylon tried to do it, trying to to take the people of Israel and literally assimilate them into their own culture. It didn't work. As soon as 70 years were up and they could go back home, they went home. Yes, some stayed, but there were always a remnant of stubborn, stick-to-the-land Jewish people who came back and who stayed there where they knew they belonged. 
Syria tried to do it. Greece tried to do it. And there always remained this resolute remnant. And then Rome comes in and they got to deal with this little country called Judea. And this people. Now most of the procurators before Pilate were known to practice appeasement. They did everything they could do just to keep peace in the land. That was kind of the role of the procurator of Judea. Pilate would have none of it. Here are some fatal flaws Josephus wrote about. Three in particular that Pompous Pilate made during his governorship. Error number one. He came riding in, and the Romans, they had banners with insignias on them, usually of of either eagles or some kind of glorious animal or the head of their Caesar. And when they marched into battle or when they came into a conquer people, they would hold up these banners. Well, Pilate came riding in, holding up these banners into Judea, and the Jewish people... Remember, God said, you shall have no God before me. You shall not even have any images, nothing. And so there are no images in Jewish worship. And they hated it. And they rebelled against it. To to such a point that there was a scene, historically, where Pilate gathered all of these protesters into the amphitheater at Caesarea. If you've been to Israel, you've been to that amphitheater right by the sea. If you're going to Israel, (laughs) sign up, sign up and go. If you're going, you will sit in this amphitheater. Pilate gathered all of these rebellious Jews there, marched them in, and he threatened to behead every single one of them if they uttered another word against his banners with these insignias. You know what they did? They bared their necks, laid down on the ground, and said, Hack away. We will not stand for this in our land. And Pilate relented. He backed off. He realized there were far too many in there and that kind of bloodshed would not go well for his political career. So he backs off. That was error number one. Error number two, Pilate had an aqueduct built to bring water from the pools of Solomon up to Jerusalem. It was a great idea. They needed water and Jerusalem is a difficult city to water. It is on a rocky set of hills there and to get water up into it is is a, a major feat. So it was a good idea, but the funding and the source for it was not a good idea. He took the money from the temple to build the aqueduct, from the temple treasures. That's where he pulled the money from. And the Jewish people went nuts. They had a teabag party and all kinds of things went on that day. (laughs) Error number two. Error number three. After all that had happened, there were a number of other revolts against Pilate and problems that he had with these people, but he audaciously marched into Jerusalem with specially made shields that now had the same icons that were on the insignias before, and he did it to tick off the Jewish people. Well, it worked. They appealed to Rome itself, to Tiberius Caesar, and Pilate, his career was over in Judea. He got recalled to Rome. Before Pilate got back to Rome, Tiberius Caesar died, and when Pilate got to Rome, shortly thereafter, he committed suicide. Because his political career went into the dumpster. Because this man couldn't seem to get along or deal with the Jewish people. Rick, is that really true, all that stuff? I mean, you got one little historian, that Josephus guy. Is it true? All this stuff about Pilate, was there really a Pilate? My answer to any archaeological or historical question is first what does your Bible say because the reality is the spate of the archaeologist is always playing catch up to the word of God and we have seen it time and time again that the word proclaims a people or a person or a time or an occasion and we have nothing in history or archaeology that proves it and so people say ah it must not have happened and then ultimately something does come up Josephus talked about Pilate 
Tacitus, a Roman historian, Philo. These guys all wrote in the first century, all wrote and talked about this man, Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, but still needs some hard evidence. In 1961, in fact, all the way up to 1961, people still refused to believe, many people, that there was ever even a Pilate. That it was just kind of a made-up part of the story. Until archaeologists digging around this region of Caesarea uncovered a limestone plaque with this Latin inscription on it. Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. Written in Latin in that limestone. You can see a mock-up of it there at Caesarea. And if you go to the Israel Museum, you can see the actual limestone that has. And you can read it yourself. You can see it there in the Latin lettering, Pilatus. Pontius Pilatus. And from there, an actual exercise regime was was figured out and worked out. (laughs) Pilates. Psalm 85, verse 11 says, Truth springs from the earth. It's one of my favorite verses to quote when we're in Israel. Truth springs from the earth. Because you see truth all around you. It's just incredible. The things that you believed because you saw them in the Word, you're now seeing with your own eyes and realizing, wow, and God at just the right time, I, I love how He works. He allows things to just kind of burst out of the ground. Right when there was a furor over whether or not Pilate even existed and people were really throwing it out, truth sprang from the earth. And this plaque was found. We don't need archaeological or historical proof to shore up our faith. We just take God at His Word. Amen? Keep doing that. The Word of Truth stands. Well, Pilate doesn't know what to do with Jesus, and to muddy the waters even more, his wife sends him a text message. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. You know what Pilate's wife's name was, don't you? It's Mrs. Pilate. Actually, tradition, and maybe not history, we don't know if this is accurate or not, but tradition tells us her name was Claudia Procula, that she was the daughter of Augustus, married to Pilate, and that she not only had converted to Judaism while in Judea, but later converted to Christianity as well. Interesting, a husband and a wife, one went the way of his flesh, one went the way of the Spirit. And gentlemen, listen to me, there are times, many times, where, (laughs) most of the time, where you need to listen to your wife. Because she is spiritually in tune in many ways that us guys are not. Pilate should have listened to his wife. But he didn't. He should have. Verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor, he said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Again, that's the question. What do you do with Jesus? That's the question. I've said this before. Let me repeat myself. In talking to someone about Jesus, and talking to someone about your faith, about Christianity, when they start to bring up all of the smoke screens and all of the other things, well, what about this? What about that? What about the pygmies? What about evolution? What about these people? What about that? Bring them back to Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question. It's the first question that needs to be answered. We can get to all the peripheral stuff. And actually that stuff is not too hard to debate. But the issue is, who do you say Jesus is? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Well, they all said, crucify Him. And He said, why? 
What evil has He done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify Him! And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, and he had seen those before, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. The one line that was omitted from the movie The Passion of the Christ because it was too inflammatory. And yet it's the one line that is most precious, I think, in the story. His blood be on us and on our children. I prayed that before any of my three children were old enough to have faith in Jesus. Lord Jesus, Your blood be on Hayden. Your blood be on Hannah. Your blood be on Corey. Save these kids. Well, they said it more in mockery, not realizing even what they were saying, the guilt that they were drawing on to themselves. Well, then Pilate, verse 26, released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. What shall I do with Jesus? Who do you say that I am? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 15. And Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Pontius Pilate stands face to face with the Messiah of the world and cannot see the truth for what it is. He cannot see Jesus in truth. Remember in John, uh, John tells us that Pilate asked, What is truth? He's looking at truth and he cannot see it. And so Pilate, like Judas, ended up committing suicide. He tried to ride the fence and appease the mob and even had Jesus flogged. What was the purpose of that? To try and calm the mob down. One thing that we see played out a little more clearly in the other Gospels, Matthew just runs over it quickly, that he had him scourged and then he handed him over to be crucified. Well, he had him scourged first in hopes that the scourging would bring about mercy. That they would see it and go, you know what, that's enough. Send him back to the Galilee. We're done with this Jesus. But it wasn't enough. They saw blood and they wanted more blood. Forty lashes minus one. That was the scourging. Because forty lashes would kill a man. And so they did thirty-nine. And often even the thirty-nine would kill people. Forty lashes, not just with a whip, but with a cat of nine tails. Called the flagellum. Strips of leather that were wrapped at the end around pieces of bone or glass or stone. And the one giving the lashing would land the lash across the back until those sharp objects sunk into the flesh and dragged it off the back 39 times. And this was before Jesus came to the cross. When he was brought again before Pilate and the people severely weakened, John 19.5 tells us, Pilate said to them, Behold the man! And Luke tells us in Luke 23.22, But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices prevailed. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. What a tragic verse. Their voices prevailed. Pilate listened to the voice of man rather than to the Spirit of God. And their voices prevailed. Now I can't prove this, but I personally think this was the moment that began Pilate's spiral into depression that led to suicide. Because he stared truth in the face and could not see him for who he was. And so began his path toward a life of insignificance and meaninglessness and ultimately his own death. There is no greater despair 
than that of a life lived in rejection of Jesus. But there's no greater hope than a life lived in faith in Jesus Christ. Because no matter how rough it gets, He is always there. And He's coming back. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around Him. They stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on His head and a reed in His right hand and they knelt down before Him and they mocked Him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on Him and took the reed and began to beat Him on the head. After they had mocked Him, they took the scarlet robe off Him and put His own garments back on Him and led Him away to crucify Him. And we're told as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon who they pressed into service to bear his cross. The Praetorium. It's in a place called the Fortress of Antonia, a well-appointed guardhouse built by Herod on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And and there's a remnant of it that is in Jerusalem to this day. Right now there's a a church that was built over it. (laughs) Churches are built over everything in Jerusalem. But if you go into the Fortress of Antonia, as we did on that snowy, windy, wild-weathered day on our last day in Jerusalem, we, we got to huddle in there, and at least we had a covering where it was slightly warm. And as we all dripped and tried to dry off, we, we sat on some benches around there. And in the Fortress of Antonia and in the Praetorium, there are still a couple of arches that were there during Jesus' day, and the pavement is the same pavement. This is one of the places, there are a lot of places in Israel you don't know, was he really here? Did he, did he walk in this place? Did he pray here? Did he give the Beatitudes on this mountain? They're not sure. But this is one of those places we know absolutely for sure Jesus stood on that pavement. And so you can go and stand in that place. And on that pavement there are etchings. Remember that, Hannah? Etchings there in the ground. That it's been understood or, or figured out that they are a Roman soldier game. A game etched into the ground that they used to play against prisoners or with prisoners who are on death row. A game that they most likely played with Jesus. We see them playing with Him, taunting Him, kneeling before Him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Mocking in jest. And yet the day is coming, the Bible tells us, when at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Why will that day come? Because verses 8 and 9 of that same chapter tell us being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Why? Because Jesus humbled himself. Because Jesus went to the cross. He earns the right. Though being God, Paul says, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He let that go. He emptied himself and became human and humbled himself and not only has the right because he's God to be worshipped, but earns the right because of his humility and sacrifice to be worshipped. And that is our Jesus. Now as we come to the actual crucifixion, please be aware of what Jesus has already endured on this night. Sweating blood in the intense agonizing pressing of Gethsemane. We talked about Sunday and and, and last Wednesday, hematidrosis, that that bursting of the capillaries causing the blood to come out of the sweat glands. Hematidrosis, when a person gets that stressed, that pressed, 
that this physiological phenomenon happens, it leaves them utterly exhausted. Have you ever given blood? That would be the, kind of similar to what happens when you would have hematidrosis. Someone who's given blood has to have orange juice and cookies and, and, and stay seated for a little while because you just be, you, you get dizzy. And that's the state Jesus would have been in in Gethsemane before the first arrest, before he was taken. He experienced the betrayal of Judas and the denials of the fleeing apostles. Six phony trials as we talked about, including blindfolded beatings about the face at a number of these phony trials. In fact, those beatings would be so bad that it would fulfill prophecy. Isaiah said in Isaiah 52.14, Just as many were astonished by you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. Jesus, by the time he got to the cross, was likely beaten unrecognizable before a single nail had been driven. In between each trial, as we said, he was dragged back and forth across Jerusalem from Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin to Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate. After that, but before he got to the cross, he went through the brutality of the flogging, which not only broke the flesh and did incredible damage, but as some Roman witnesses historically have written about flogging, it would literally leave the muscles and viscera shredded into long ribbons hanging off the back. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him and by His scourging we are healed. Man, we've got to be careful not to toss around a verse like that. Oh, by His scourging we've been healed without recognizing the extent of that scourging. What He did that we might be healed. To the extreme. The crown of thorns was ground into his scalp. It was a mocking of the wreath of Caesar. But it was a wreath of thorns rather than the wreath of leaves. And the Romans would do this from time to time as if to say, don't mess with Rome. And so that was on his head and eventually Jesus had to carry his cross through the streets of Jerusalem. By the way, I know I know you've seen in the movies and, and other depictions of Jesus carrying the cross. You see the whole thing. You've got the, the long dragging it behind him and that's not the way it was done. In fact, what Jesus carried was the cross beam called the patibulum. And it in and of itself was a huge beam and very heavy and difficult to carry. The longer beam would have been impossible for someone to carry by themselves and it was already at Golgotha. That was called the stipes. And the stipes was that piece that was fit vertically into the ground. The patibulum then was attached to the stipes at the place of crucifixion. Add to all of that physical drama, that physical thrashing, the emotional and spiritual pain that Jesus was going through all at the same time. The emotional pain of watching all who loved Him flee and betray Him. The spiritual pain of recognizing your sin and mine when He went to the cross. A few years back, Russ Pittis was giving a communion meditation on a Sunday morning and he said something he had learned I had never heard before and I have never forgotten since. The suffering of Jesus on the cross actually yielded a new word, the word excruciating, from the Latin crucis for cross. Excruciating because there was no word to describe what Jesus really went through. And after all that, 
It's not a wonder that he couldn't bear the crossbeam on his shoulders. And so as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, who they pressed into service to bear his cross. Verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. You've heard the name Calvary. Calvarium, which literally means skull. So Calvary chapels are skull chapels. That's what they're called. Golgotha, the place of the skull. They gave him wine to drink, mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Golgotha was so named because of the skull-like cavern on the rocky outcropping that is outside the city gates, and it's still there today, and it has been there for millennium. It looks today very much like it looked back then. Now, now you might say, yeah, but Rick, what about erosion? Wouldn't that change things? It would, except the stone there, that limestone is very, very hard. And so what you see when you look at Golgotha today, and it was discovered by a man named Gordon of the British Army, and Gordon's tomb, and it's all in that same area, Golgotha, it looks like a skull. It's amazing. You can stand there at the Damascus Gate of the, of the old city, and look across, and it looks like you're looking at, a, at Skull Hill. And that's where the name Golgotha comes from. What's interesting is Golgotha happens to be at the peak, the highest point, of Mount Moriah. Jerusalem's built on three different mountains, and Mount Moriah is the primary one there in the middle. Golgotha sits at the peak. It ascends topographically from the Temple Mount. It's kind of hard to see now because when you look from the Temple Mount, there's a road there in front of it that runs, and there's a bus depot, and there are other you know, modern things between the two, but it actually ascends there, and you can see the eyes and the mouth and the nose of a very visible skull, Golgotha. It's likely that it's located at the very spot Abraham took his son Isaac when he was taking him to offer him as a sacrifice to God. Abraham named that spot Yahweh Jireh. The Lord will provide. The Lord provided. He said in Genesis 22, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. Now listen to this. Abraham said these words that day, after he was saved from having to sacrifice his son, after he got a ram, found a ram in the thicket, and went up and sacrificed that. Then Abraham said, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Yahweh Jireh. But this is interesting to me. When he spoke those words back all those years before, when Abraham said, In the mount of the Lord it will be provided, he should have said, In the mount of the Lord it was provided. Past tense. But he didn't. He said future tense. In this place will be provision. In this place, a ram, a sacrifice, will be provided. And it was prophetic, gang, because God did provide a sacrifice in that very place, on Golgotha, His Son, Jesus. And we're told when Jesus was taken there, as they were about to crucify Him, they offered Him wine mixed with gall, and He wouldn't take it. Why not? Gall was a painkiller. The Romans had a very specific intention for crucifixion. Make it last with brief interruptions to the pain. And if they looked, if it looked like a prisoner was starting to lose it, was starting to lose his life and wasn't hanging on, they would offer them wine mixed with gall. Deaden the pain. Give them a little morphine. I mean, that was the idea. Deaden the pain just enough so that they could have a moment or two of relief before the pain came back in in the crucifixion. Jesus should have died before He ever got to the cross. He should not have made it to the cross. 
And when they offered him gall, Jesus said no. Listen, Jesus would not allow himself the slightest relief. When he went to the cross, he took all of the cross. All of the beating. All of that crucifixion. In verse 35 it says, When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Verse 35 is another fulfillment of prophecy. I'm just going to read this quickly to you. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is one of the greatest messianic psalms we have in the Bible. And when I say messianic, you understand I'm saying Psalm of the Messiah. And this psalm is incredible. Listen to it. It sounds more like a history than a prophecy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how the psalm begins. Jesus will say those words in just a moment. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet, you are holy. You who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me, listen to this, sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Sound familiar? Yet you are He who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint which happens in crucifixion. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust. Did you catch that? You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David wrote that literally centuries before crucifixion was invented. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me. They stare at me. And if it's not specific enough, listen to verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. It's exactly what we're reading happening here at the crucifixion back in Matthew 27. A psalm of King David, a thousand years written earlier, clearly inspired by the Spirit of King Jesus. Well, verse 38. At that time, two robbers were crucified with Him, one on the right, one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at Him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself! If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross! In the same way, the chief priests also with the scribes and the elders were mocking Him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He's the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue Him now if He delights in Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who had been crucified with Him were also insulting Him with the same words. Now we don't find out until later one of those robbers repents 
and is saved that very day. But Matthew is painting a picture for us that is staggering. Verse 43 is obviously a direct quote from Psalm 22. Verse 43, where they, they say he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And what's amazing is while Jesus will quote this psalm himself while hanging on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the enemies of Christ, also quote this exact same psalm and they don't even know they're doing it. They don't even recognize what's going on. Now, from 9 a.m. to 12 noon, Jesus suffered at the hands of men all the way here through verse 44. That morning was spent at the hands of evil, at the sin of man. But it was not these sufferings, gang, that took away our sin. It was the next three hours that took our sin. 12 noon to 3 p.m. because that's when God's wrath came pouring in. Follow me on that. 9 to noon, the wrath of man. And it was brutal and it was bad. Noon to 3, the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath that Jesus shrank from in the garden, He now drinks completely. As Ironside wrote, He drained it to the dregs. Verse 45 Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. Sixth hour again being noon, the ninth being three. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing by there when they heard it began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud spirit, with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And this is powerful, gang. He he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Man did not take it from him. Jesus gave it when he was ready. He did not die to the wounds. He did not die from the exhaustion or the excruciating pain. Jesus died when the price was fully paid. He died when he was ready. And we know what he said when he screamed aloud and gave up his spirit. He cried out those words, John 19.30. It is finished. It is finished. It's the Greek word, tetelestai. From the root teleos. Finished. Done. Tetelestai, he said. And then he gave up his spirit. I looked up Tetelestai. It was a word used by servants. After completing a task, they would come back to their master and they would say, Master, Tetelestai, I've completed your will. I've fulfilled what you sent me to fulfill. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Tetelestai was a servant's word. It was also an artist's word. A Greek artist, upon placing the final touches on a painting or a sculpture, would proclaim, Tetelestai, the picture is perfect. It's done. The artwork complete. A servant word. It was an artist's word. It was a merchant's word. When a transaction was finished, they would say, Okay, Tetelestai, paid in full. Jesus completing the transaction for our sin. The redemption, buying us back completely, 
paid in full. And tetelestai was a word used not just by servants, artists, merchants. It was a word used by the high priest. He would inspect the flawless animal for the Passover sacrifice, and when he saw that it was perfect and spotless, he would say, tetelestai, spotless, ready for sacrifice. And the teaching on the Passover, Exodus chapter 12, verse 5, says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. Jesus was spotless, perfect. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.19, With precious blood you were redeemed, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Listen, this is you He's talking to and me. He appeared for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. You have faith and you have hope because of what Jesus did, because of who He is. He came for you. For you. There is nothing more personal here in all of Scripture. He came spotless for you and your sin. His service was offered. Picture perfect. The debt was paid in full by the blood of the spotless Lamb. Watch the immediate result. Verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after His resurrection, they entered the holy city, and they appeared to many. Absolutely amazing. Verse 51 tells us that the temple veil was split. But notice how it was split. Not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. If it was done by an earthquake, you would expect it to be pulled apart from the bottom up. But it wasn't done by the earthquake. I submit to you it was done by the hands of God who said, I've had it with separation. It is open house now. Now the way is open for you to come to me. God tore the veil. God ripped it from top down. Verse 52 then going on to tell us about an amazing thing, a brand new life. That the tombs were open and and people began to be resurrected. So powerful is what happened there. And, and by the way, Matthew, he's very specific about this. Death was yet to be conquered. Death was not conquered at the crucifixion. Death was conquered at the resurrection. And Matthew is very specific where he says, after his resurrection, they entered the city and were seen by people. And so I believe what's going on here is it wasn't at the crucifixion that the people resurrected. It was at the resurrection. So powerful was Jesus breaking the chains of death that those who were dead nearby woke up, walked out of their tombs, and were seen in the streets of Jerusalem. Can you even imagine that? Uncle Fred? Aunt Bertha? You look great! People who were once dead. I mean, this is, this is something that you know, the world tries to, to cover up. But it was absolutely astounding what Jesus did. He opened a brand new way through that veil. He gave a brand new life. Death is now conquered. And there's not a one of us who have faith in Jesus who have any reason to fear death at all. It may come before He comes. Bring it on. And if it does come before He comes, whatever. I'll just hang around. Death is not to be feared because Jesus conquered it. We have a brand new life that cannot be taken from us when we live in Jesus. And verse 54, 
Verse 54 says, Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, This, truly, this was the Son of God. A brand new way was opened, brand new life was given, and a brand new confession is now stated. You see, this is different than Peter's confession. When Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, it was before the crucifixion. And Peter is looking, and, and Peter only knew that by revelation anyway. He didn't figure it out. God just told him to say it, and so he said it. Peter just wasn't that bright. But it was before the crucifixion. The moment the death of Jesus happened, the moment the price was paid, and this centurion now says, Truly, this was the Son of God, we have a new confession. We have a confession now that can save a life. Peter's confession was true. But the centurion's confession would be a confession towards salvation. Now, I don't know about this particular man. Was he saved because he said this? I don't know. But the statement now made from the death of Jesus forward, anyone who would say, I believe in the crucifixion, I believe that Jesus died for me, I confess that He is the Son of God, guess what you've just stepped into? A brand new life. Salvation. Eternity. Kept by the Spirit of God. But the story isn't quite over yet. Verse 55 tells us many women were there looking from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to Him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I talked to a woman today who has spent much of her life ministering to Jesus. But today she was wondering what it's all been worth. She was feeling like she's not really doing anything right now. She was unable even to see all that she has spent her life doing. I came to this last verse and I realized Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee must have felt the same way. They spent three years of their life ministering to Jesus. They provided financially this group of women who followed Him around. They cared for needs. They would have been the one who, you know, they're organizing the meal while the apostles are out doing the thing and they come back and gather together. They ministered to Jesus. What a cool job. (laughs) And yet here, Jesus is dead and they have to be looking at the cross and looking at Jesus. John, by the way, was the only one among the men who even came to the cross that we know for sure. But we know these women were there. Considering the cross and wondering, what was it worth? My whole life. Or the last three years spent ministering to Him and I don't, I don't see the value. He's dead. I don't see the worth of all that I've, I've put in here. But you see, we know something that they didn't know. That the story's not over. That all of that ministry over those three years was only three days away from seeing its greatest fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I tell you that because I know the despair that I see in people's lives when they give and give and give in service and ministry to the Lord and they feel like they've done everything and then it just seems to die before them. And they don't know how to get beyond that moment. I've done all this, but I I see no fruit. I don't see any value to it. I'm just... Did I waste my time? You've got to go back, not to the cross, but to the resurrection which gives life to everything that we do in service to the Lord. Jesus said, if someone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, he will not lose his reward. 
The value of a life given in service of Jesus Christ cannot be measured by this act or that act or the preponderance of acts and things that we do. It is just measured in our love for Him. In our faith for Him. And more than that, in His love for you. You're going to find yourself in times in life feeling like you're in a flat place. You're not serving. You're not conquering. You're not doing. You're just kind of there. Maybe you're just raising kids. Maybe you're stuck at home. Maybe you're just going to work every day. Maybe you're just helping your church, but you don't see great things happening. You kind of wonder if it's all just dying. Remember the resurrection. You can see what these women couldn't quite yet see. Oh, they would see it. But you can see that. And it is the resurrection that gives life to everything. Gang, the the story is ongoing. And you know the story is ongoing until he returns. But Paul wrote these words in Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I want to point this out and we're done. When Paul says, I want all this, I want to know Christ, I want the the power of His resurrection, fellowship in His sufferings, he says, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, the word attain is not a good translation there. The word is literally arrive at. I want to know Christ. Because my ultimate destination, I want to arrive at resurrection. I want to arrive at that place where I am resurrected to not just a brand new way, a brand new life, a brand new confession. I want to arrive to eternity with Jesus. And you know what Jesus did on the cross provided for that. You have the ticket for ultimate arrival in Jesus Christ because of what He did. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, what has so often been called the passion and what is, what is done often over and over in passion plays is, is the most passionate scene in all of Scripture. Lord, we're reading words on a page, but it does something to us. We recognize what You were willing to suffer for us. And Father, tonight we we don't approach these things so that we can dredge up some kind of phony religious guilt. Oh, look at what we did. That's not the point of this. The point is to see what You did, Lord Jesus. To grasp, if we can, how great Your love is for us. A love so undeserved and unmerited We are unworthy of it, but You gave it before any of us in this place were even breathing. Before we were born. Before we had even sinned our first sin, You had already provided the sacrifice for that sin. Praise You, Jesus. Praise You, Father. Tonight we go out of here, Lord, just worshiping You and thanking You for going before us. And thanking You that our moments of despair are so... They're so meaningless by comparison. They just... Lord, take us to the cross. Take us to the cross tonight 
that everything else would fall away as we prayed before. And I pray that You will encourage us by these things that we have seen, by the expression, the ultimate expression of Your love for Your people. And may we carry this with us. And Lord, may we be tellers of this story. The whole story. Your death, Your burial, Your resurrection, Lord Jesus. Until that day when You come. The day we so look forward to. We thank You. In Jesus' name. Amen.